Hello, welcome to Greenlit with me, the voice which belongs to Toby Earl. Each week on Greenlit, a guest receives the thrilling news their life is to be made into a biopic, and we discuss how that story will be told. Will they star? Which moments won't make it into the adaptation? And will Godzilla make an appearance? In this episode, comedian, writer, impressionist, podcaster, radio presenter, and author Matt Ford will plot the course of this certain blockbuster. Ford is a spitting imager, and have I got news for you? A co-host of podcast British Scandal, host of live show and podcast The Political Party, co-presenter of Absolute Radio's rock and roll football show, and he's a formidable archer. Matt Ford, welcome to Greenlit. What's the archer fact? Is that not true? Is that I thought you were pretty handy with a with a bow? Is that not true? <laughs> I no? don't know. I can't. I can never tell with you whether you're joking or not. <laughs> you're winding me up. I don't know. I I heard that you used to uh, rob the rich and give to the poor. Is that oh, not true? Oh, I see. I wondered that... where this was coming from. I've interviewed Jeffrey Archer. <laughs> I think that's the closest I've got. So are that that connection's there then. So you're not you're not handy with a bow and arrow then. Just just to clarify. Oh, I'm terrible at anything target related. And that was, <laughs> I'm sure previous managers would agree. Um, oh, terrible shot! I remember once, um, and maybe we'll talk about this in the film, having an argument over the dinner table with my sister when we were kids, and uh, thought I'm going to throw this glass of water in her face. And missed for like a table's width away. That's never left me. That haunts me like a missed penalty would a footballer. How did I miss a face from there? But <laughs> in a way, I on? guess it was my. I guess my arm was my conscience. It, I think subconsciously I deliberately missed uh, because I didn't want to. Your arm disobeyed a direct command. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Where did, can I just ask, when he threw the glass of water at your sister across a table, a distance of no more than two feet, maybe, at the very most, yeah. um, what did the water go on? Uh, the books, bookshelf was behind her. I mean, once you've extended your arm, you basically... You're there. That's point-blank range. Yeah. But it's sort of skewed right. Yeah, it hit the books. It hit, um, I think, specifically... Mario Puzo, Fool's Die, and Pilgrim's Progress. I seem to remember we're on that bookshelf. These are my mum's books. I just remember what? seeing the water hit it so clearly. Oh, my God. That is such an incredibly precise memory. I love the fact, was it John Bunyan? You hit John Bunyan. That, 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 <laughs> yeah. Yeah, <laughs> that important got it. work. That's amazing. Well, well Matt, thank, thank you for, for, for joining us on Greenlit. Welcome to Greenlit, Matt Ford. Um, thank you. Before we start, is it pronounced biopic? Or biopic? Oh, I would say biopic. But I think biopic. people only say biopic to make a point, don't they? So that they're telling you what the word means. That's an interesting interpretation. Not heard that one before. Because biopic what? almost sounds like a medical procedure. You know, like, I've got my biopic books on Thursday. Exactly, yes. It's grown. <laughs> yeah, I like the fact we said people use it to explain it's a biopic, like you would do for someone who hasn't quite caught on yet. It's a biopic. It's a bi <laughs> it's an autobiography. <laughs> exactly. Exactly like that. And parent at parents' evening being talked through, he's not doing very well. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, if you're having to break down very well, then um, things are very, very bad. So it's a biopic. This is good biopic. to know. Um the meeting, Matt. Where's that meeting going to take place? Where do you want to meet these executives? Do you want to go into the studio? Do you want to go to a fancy restaurant? Or do you want to take them somewhere different? 
someone neutral? Where, where would you like to meet them? Oh, that's really good. I mean, I, I'd, I'd be tempted, my gut says, either in the boardroom yeah. at their headquarters, so like at Warner Brothers or at Universal. Yes. Make it feel big. This is a big deal, so let's make it feel big. Or uh, a great dinner followed by beers in the pub. I, I, and I actually, I think I'm going to go boardroom. I'm going to go. I want to be there surrounded by gold discs and awards going. We're going to add <laughs> another one to that. It's my dream, you, isn't it? So I want, yeah. I want it to feel like this is professional. If I think if I signed a deal in the pub, I think, is that, does that count? Is that real? It feels like we should be signing this on a proper desk surrounded right. by BAFTAs and Oscars. Yes. I don't think we should be doing this down the, the rat and parrot. Oh, you but know, it, this, this feels like it should be more serious but the the rat and parrots pork scratchings though are almost third to none <laughs> but imagine like it has stains on it that contract imagine if it if it got legal in the future if they try to renege on the deal and you have to hold <laughs> that up in court they'd be like why is it you know oh i spilt fosters on it and that, that's part of a pork scratching that drips we out actually, my mouth yeah we didn't actually have any pens or ink so what we did is we got the crumb off some scampy fries and we used that crumb and grease with which to sign it with our fingers does that not hold up in court <laughs> yeah exactly so i think uh, i think make it feel serious make it feel big get it done officially get lawyers to countersign it and yeah. like you almost i'd want it in like really plain language like in block capitals we warner brothers agree that if we change our mind we still have to pay him 10 million pounds. <laughs> Something like that. So then you're like, well, it's the film or it's 10 million quid. You decide. Well, that just feel like it, a bit like it, a prenup, that, doesn't it? It doesn't feel like the, the ideal start to a creative relationship. <laughs> <laughs> Matt, are you already splitting from Warner Brothers? Have you already have you started a crack in the relationship already? Yeah. Yeah, I feel like I'm sort of too suspicious of my new partners. I think we want to give you a film deal. Great news. If you fuck me over, I'll kill you. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, happy to sign. It's a real honour to be working with you guys. <laughs> I mean, it's an intimidating environment. You, you say you want to be in the boardroom. You want to be, I'm guessing, in LA, perhaps even. You yeah. want to go to LA to do it over there. Perfect. You want to be in that environment, right? So you want the you you want the phalanxes of of lawyers. You want the kind of cigar chomping yeah. impresario, you know, behind the desk. But it's quite an intimidating environment. What are you are you good in those environments? You worked in I, politics. Is, is that something you can take with you? I think so. Yeah, I think it hardens you up a bit. And I think, um, you know, I never understood. I mean, I get that. I get the psychology of neutral territory that, or, or you know, non-neutral territory that if someone comes to your house, it's your place and yeah. that affects the dynamic. But I've never minded going to other people's places for meetings or going to other people's boardrooms or whatever. I just think, yeah, I think a lot of that people... Uh, feel intimidated even when your host isn't trying to intimidate you so I think you have to remember that is that it's just where they work so it's easy for them to meet there so don't worry that they're trying to and I think there's something about going there and and saying what you want to say in, in plain language to people's faces you know I think you have to you, you have to kind of spit it out sometimes and uh, yeah I, I think working in politics definitely teaches you that I mean it's, it's remarkable the amount of politicians I've talked to from working class backgrounds who say oh you know the House of Commons is really intimidating I think I've never thought that. I just think it looks beautiful. Like I don't feel. I never felt that it was a place that made me feel like an oik. I always felt like it was a place that was. I mean, not that the behaviour of the people there is elevated. But you go, this is great. This is like a grand stage for these things. So I find it. I find in a way, 
I prefer going to places like that than doing it in a kind of neutral whitewashed room. You know, I'd, I'd rather be in a, in a grand setting, particularly if you do getting your film made, yeah. make it feel big and real. And LA is the perfect place because I'd probably I've never been. And then I could right. go for a few days and I really want to I've become obsessed with the real housewives of Beverly Hills. So I want <laughs> to go to, I've just started, I started watching it in January. I'm already on season 10. What? I've watched. I mean, by definition, that's almost 200 episodes of it. So I, I would, um, I really want to go to Lisa Vanderpump's restaurants, sir and pump, in the vain hope of, of meeting her and Ken, have a meal, go to the places that those girls go. Why? <laughs> I just want to hang out with the girls. Why have you got into, why have you got into Real Housewives of Beverly Hills? Why, what got you into it? My girlfriend was watching it on Netflix and I just thought, oh. but. I mean, I watched it for five minutes and was hooked. And I think it's the best version of that genre of reality telly in that the characters are massive. The setting is stunning yeah. and there's real drama in it. And the characters are really clear and they're really likable and they're a bit mad and it's great. And I think during lockdown, it's been phenomenal escapism being able to, in my head, live in Beverly Hills. <laughs> A bit. I think that's been a big part of it. But I really like the characters. I think it's really funny. If you haven't watched it, this really glamorous lifestyle, these very wealthy Beverly Hills women. But at the heart of it, oddly, are two or three Brits. So Lisa and Ken Vanderpump, but also a guy called Paul Kelmsley, who is friends with Alan Sugar and has been on The Apprentice. So it's really funny that you have these... (laughs) At times they can appear superficial. Actually, they're, they're really likable characters, but they're wealthy and they can be a bit frivolous. And you know, um, yeah. they're what you would expect the Real Housewives of Beverly Hills to be like. And then you've got a basically a kind of Cockney grump at the middle of it. Going, oh, <laughs> fuck it now. It's a really funny mix of Rolexes and glamour, and then a bloke going, "I'll oh, fuck all that." It's just so funny that there's a kind of <laughs> British elements of it that um, I just love it. So I, I want to go out there and I, I want to walk the streets of Beverly Hills and meet them. Yeah, Rodeo Drive. It's so funny you say that because surely I've been I have not an argument with my girlfriend. But I was like, "Oh, Rodeo <laughs> Drive," and she was like, "No, it's Rodeo Drive." I was like, "Why would they pronounce it like that? The word is rodeo." So. It turns out I was wrong. It is Rodeo Drive. And the thing is, you see, Matt, this this isn't my first Rodeo, so. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, you got me. Is that how it's pronounced, though? Rodeo Rodeo Drive. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I'm pretty sure that's I'm I'm 99 percent sure it's it's Rodeo Drive, not Rodeo Drive. You're right. I think I think it turns out you're right. Yeah. Because if you, you would expect you would hope on Rodeo Drive, there would be a rodeo going on. Like people would be bucking on horses all the way down the street. They're not. Yeah. They're not. They're in car. They're in posh cars and and whatnot. And and there's no no horses to be seen. So why is it? Got, what, but why the pronunciation of that? Why the emphasis on rodeo rather than rodeo? Maybe hyacinth bouquet actually was a town planner. <laughs> she was the original. Where was she based? Where was it set? I, I want to say Basingstoke, but it's not, is it? It's like it's good. It's somewhere very suburban. I can't. That'd I can't remember. The um, Real Housewives of Basingstoke. I would absolutely watch Real Housewives of wherever Hyacinth Bouquet is from. Yeah, that would be, be absolutely incredible. Um, I would watch that. Um, just before we move on, I have to ask you. You mentioned about not being intimidated in environments. You want to be in that studio setting. You want to be in that big boardroom. You know, and it doesn't put you off. What if they did an Ursula von der Leyen uh, sofa on you though, and they kind of sort of made space for the for the important people, but put you on a sofa? 
they they kind of like undercut your authority by putting you on a, a secondary set of seating. Yeah, I, I mean, I think I would infer that that was bad news. <laughs> uh, are, they, are they are they really into this? If they've got me sat on a, a puffy over in the corner, I'd go, ah, uh, I don't think you got... I'd say, that I'm really sorry, but I can't help but feel this is a signal of something. <laughs> so I'd address it, I think. The, the key would be to address it and go, this feels a bit strange. Right. Are you really I mean, it into was... this? And then if they are, if they're not into it, I'll say, like, I'll just take my business elsewhere. So that's cool. I, it would, it, it would, uh, I, know, maybe they, come they, back. we need this film, please. They got wind of your um, prenup. Yeah. I think if they're making you sit on a kind of side chair and you're not at the main table when <laughs> this is a commission about the film of your life. <laughs> <laughs> let's, yeah. let's, let's presume you're, you're, you're in the, one of the big thrones, the boardroom thrones, you're sitting yeah. down and you're having the chat. Exciting news. Your life has been greenlit for a biopic, but how would your life be told by Hollywood or Bollywood or Nollywood? And what sort of creative control would you exercise in bringing the greatest story you know to the big screen? First question, Matt. What is the biopic of Matt Ford called? The film is called Scab. <laughs> and it's about a boy with eczema born during the oh, no. Born during the miners' strike in, in Nottingham. <laughs> so it's the story of... Wow. Uh, <laughs> for those of you that don't know, Nottinghamshire miners were the first ones to cross the picket line in the 1984 strike and were then known as scabs. I was born in Nottingham during this period and uh, suffered badly with eczema. So oh, had my man. own scabs to deal with against oh, that background Matt. of industrial strife. Matt. I mean, it's poetic, it's confrontational. It was my first it's, nickname at school as well. It wasn't. I had really bad eczema, really bad luck like, on my face and on my arms. I, still quite bad, but it was really bad back then. I didn't mind it. It was kind of, there was another lad with eczema and his, his name was Scab too. Like it was a sequel. I have to say, it was all done really. <laughs> it was all done with a sort of a, a amount of affection, I think. What was I it? Think. Well, the best nickname I had at school was secondary school. So this was like A-level time. So I was kind of, you know, I was a young man at this point. And um, I still had my eczema, but I uh, developed quite a bad flatulence problem. <laughs> I actually had to... <laughs> my English teacher, Mr. Wilshaw, used to call me Scratch and Snick. <laughs> so I had permission in A-level English to just get up and leave the class if I needed to trump because it was so disruptive. I, would, I wouldn't have to raise my hand. I could just get... The problem is this built into every lesson, this real sort of tension where <laughs> my sort of chair would squeak back. I'd get up and people go... Whoa. And I'd like sort of close the door. Fart in the corridor, then come back in. Hey! So in the end, actually, it was far more disruptive, but, you know, better oh in other God. ways. I've never heard of anything like that. That I'm really sorry, Matt. I'm not. I, sh I mean, I'm laughing. I shouldn't be necessarily, but oh my good, scratch and sniff. That what is... a genius, Steve Wilshaw, an amazing teacher. I, in fact, I saw him a few years ago. We reminisced, and he didn't remember. I was like, oh my god, I've told that story so often. It's such a great moment in my life, and he, he didn't remember it. So like, oh, I mean, that is. I mean, that also makes you wonder, was that even his worst nickname for a pupil? Like, he had other even better ones that he kind of mem remembers fondly. Remember that time I called that kid that name? And God, he was devastated. Oh, God, yeah, I maybe I was it. just one of many. You know, to me, obviously, I was 
I had this kind of special relationship with that nickname, but maybe he was just doling them out. Tom was a fuck off once during a lesson. He had this really <laughs> weird, we, we, we convinced him, although I think he knew what we were up to. You know, when you get to that age, when you're about sort of 15, 16, you, you get quite wily, I think. It's the first time you realise you're sort of consciously wily about stuff. You think, I reckon I could blag the odd bit, you know, here. Yeah. I'm, I'm not talking about criminal behaviour. I was a very well-behaved boy, but I think because I got involved in politics early, you sort of subconsciously pick up how to sound authoritative about stuff that you right. have no idea about. <laughs> oh, sir, I read a thing in The Guardian about um, how um, like a cup of tea and a biscuit boosts productivity. So I just wondered if, you know, we could do that in our lessons, you know. If we, if... And he was like, look, if you guys want to club together, get yourself tea bags and milk and biscuits, and as long as you're brewed up and it's all laid out before the lesson starts, so it doesn't eat into lesson time, come in during the break and do it, you can do it. So we did, wow. we all clubbed together, we got ourselves a kettle, um, some tea bags, some milk, and some custard creams and bourbons, <laughs> and we would just go in before, I was happy to do it, I was like, this is great. And then the lesson would start, we'd all have a cuppa and a, and a biscuit, I was like, this is fucking, don't you feel really sophisticated? I think he knew that I'd bullshitted him, probably just thought it was quite a good idea, but he had this I can only describe it as a chalice that he used to drink out of. It was like this plastic <laughs> pint glass that had like embossed fruit, like medieval. And then he used to, he had this really strange flask he would pour his water out of. And one afternoon I said, oh, sir, may I sip from thy chalice? And he went, fuck off, Fordy, I don't want your scabby lips right <laughs> Oh, this was like I was 16. I loved him. <laughs> and he got scabby in there as well. I mean, that obviously oh, yeah. that was following you through. I mean, on the title of the film, before we move on, a, a childhood nickname can can be quite hurtful, particularly if you know it is, and that was obviously quite mean to you, really. I mean, it's pretty mean. You got eczema, even you're quite happy with it. Did it did it bother you that much? Did it did it carry that kind of weight, or did people just let it go after a while? And did you yeah. let it go? I mean, were you able to let it go? I think because it was amongst friends. I think with anything like this, and I think this is probably a lesson for the social media age and for the nature of offence. If you can tell that it's kind of not done with venom and malice, then I think it didn't bother me. It didn't bother me at all, actually, either of those nicknames. And the first one was like, and obviously like at primary school age, kids can be brutal, but I just think... I, I could tell that it was done with a certain amount of affection. It didn't bother me. Actually, my fear was always, I, and I've always feared more physical violence. And I think That's, I yeah. did get, I, and I got quite badly bullied as a kid. So then actually, I think the contrast between the two was like getting called scabs, nothing compared to, you know, right. the genuinely scary experiences that I had. So maybe it's that, maybe it's that. And I think with a lot of the Twitter stuff, you think, well, no one's, no one's at my front door with a knife. So. <laughs> you know, frankly, you know, I just think name calling never really bothered me that much, right? And so, with the, actually, but before before we go up, scratch and sniff, did you did you go to a co-ed school? Was it boys and girls? Oh yeah, 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 just comp. So it was, uh, yeah, it was boys and girls. Yeah. So I mean, hit with the ladies, old scratch and sniff, wandering around corridors. No, not at all. No, 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 not a hit with the ladies. I mean, I wasn't even a hit with the boys, let alone the girls. <laughs> So, uh, no, I wasn't hit with anyone. I love, I love the idea that you know the, the film title is great because you've got the parallel. You got the parallel of your experience and the and the, and the minor strike. Is that going to be is that going to be used in the opening scene? What is the opening scene to scab the Matt Ford biopic? <laughs> well, you you have nailed it there. So the opening scene is a radio 
So it's set in 1980, starts in 1984. Yeah. And uh, a very 80s dressed room. You just yes. see the radio, it crackles. Yes. And you can hear something like, Arthur Scargill has said that he doesn't need to ballot his members in order to call a general strike. Margaret Thatcher has said she will not cave in to the rule of the mob. And then, and then you hear this kind of scratching noise and you think, oh, maybe rats or something. And then the camera sort of either pans left or just pans out. And you'll see me in bed sort of a year and a half old, just clawing at my skin. I mean, oh, I used no. to scratch. I mean, even now, you know, what? I just scratch all the time. It's just, uh, there's always an itch somewhere on oh, my body. No. And uh, we had, um, <laughs> this sounds so sad when I say it, <laughs> but we, um, we grew up in a council house and, uh, you know, it was, I, I, I've thought about this so much recently. It, it was in pretty poor condition, really. And no wonder I had asthma, you know, parts of it were damp and everything. And it was, but we had <laughs> wood chip walls. Right. And, and if, you, if you've never seen wood chip, it's basically a really cheap form of uh, wallpaper that has, chippings in it yeah so it looks like the floor but it's on the wall <laughs> and i would the, oh man the, um, the soles of my feet used to get so itchy but i would scratch them on the wall so the wood chip <laughs> oh. would be like my mother used to be like stop i mean it sounds disgusting <laughs> i was a kid i didn't know any about five you know so i'd kind of scratch my feet on the wall because the wood oh, chip no. was such a, such a great relief so in a way Growing up with effectively what was sandpaper walls was, uh, was was very fitting. That's such a powerful opening scene, marrying the two together. <laughs> that really is. Particularly yeah. if you particularly if you're slightly older and you're there lying on your back, rubbing your feet on the wall while that's that's going on. I mean, that is yeah. that's an image. Woodchip on the walls. I mean, you, you say that automatically. You can't not hear Jarvis Cocker sing that. Have you ever tried oh, yes. to? Have you ever tried to um, strip woodchip from the walls? No, I imagine it's very difficult. Yeah, it's horrible. It's tough. Have you? It's tough because it's like it's it was it's white, isn't it? And it's bobbly. It's white and bobbly. Yeah. And I remember I remember basically doing that once with a um. I didn't even I didn't even use a heat gun. I was just slowly losing my mind, just trying to scrape it off, and it was just coming off like in tiny shreds. And you just stand there for hours, repeatedly doing this. It looks like I'm doing a massive wanker sign, but I'm not. <laughs> it's incredible. Yeah. It's just so hard to come off. So that's the opening scene. So your your life is mirroring that. I was wondering when you first mentioned that. I just had this image of a of a of a five year old with a sooty face crossing the picket line trying to get to work with a miner's lamp and like a, yeah, a British yeah, just trying to go jacket. just trying to go to work. Did that, did that, did, did that intrude? Did you notice that in your life? You know, you said, you know, that kind of was important. It kind of, that was that backdrop. Did you notice that much when you were growing up? Did you no, notice not that kind of, no. Not at all. Uh, and then I grew up in the city of Nottingham, right in the inner city. So actually what was happening in Nottinghamshire? I mean, I'm sure had I been 18 or 19 or 20 and active in politics at the time, I'd have been going to places like Mansfield and Ashfield and North Knotts where it was all happening and, getting involved in Labour Party meetings. But in the city, certainly at my young age, it, it didn't seem to intrude at all. And some of those places are actually quite far away from the centre of Nottingham. So it's a kind of convenient uh, marketing pitch for the film. But no, I mean, I remember Thatcher and all stuff like that, but the minor strike didn't seem to intrude at all into uh, my life in the inner city of Nottingham. Yeah, which what was the what was the area of Nottingham? Just out of interest, where it's called Snenton, so it's uh, it's you know bang in the centre, right next to a part of Nottingham called St Anne's, and uh, you know oh, they yes. are. I mean, 
I grew up on a street that basically you look like the old opening credits to Coronation Street, just those rows and rows of houses where your front door opens straight out into the street. It's just terraces. You have a backyard out the back with a kind of waist-high perimeter wall that then backs onto the backyard, the backs onto the house, the back, you know, so it's just sort of rows. So you're yeah. right in on top of it, everyone, which uh, it's benefits with it. You know, all your neighbours and there are lots of friendly people there. But the downside is, you know, you're living cheek by jowl with uh, some dysfunctional people and some very aggressive people. So <laughs> it can feel very claustrophobic. With that in mind, I'm assuming you're saying you want a film to start young. You want the film to start with you as a youngster in this, in yes. this backdrop. Who's going to be cast in the lead, Matt? Who's playing Matt Ford? So it's another Ford. It's Alan Ford. Um, oh my God. Tony from Snatch. Oh my God. Are you serious? <laughs> yes, I am. Yeah. <laughs> Is he playing you as a child as well as older? He plays me at every age. And I just thought, you know, in The Irishman, how they made De Niro and Pesci look younger. By the time this film comes out, you'll be able to make Alan Ford look any age. So why not have him play <laughs> any age and every age? So I would want him to play me from the cot to the grave should I die before the film is made. What 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 is it about Alan Ford that you see yourself? What is it in him that you see in yourself? And, and why him as a screen presence? We're both Fords, and I think that's, that's important. <laughs> Although his, his, his Ford doesn't have an E on the end. But he is, I think, Bricktop Tony in Snatch is one of the all-time great cinematic performances. Because <laughs> he's a kind of odd-looking guy, but he is menacing as hell. And I think the way he uses his eyes and his taste, <laughs> and, you know, everything is just like, wow, this guy... Could easily play, you know, what a performance to basically. He could easily just play a genteel character, but through the force of his performance, turns himself into this grisly, gruesome figure. So I just think he's an amazing. Uh, he's got great comic timing. I think he's really funny, and um, yes, arguably playing against type, playing a a, a young lad from Nottingham. But I just <laughs> I love him so much. I think he would really bring something to the role. Would he have the same sort of London accent as well? He'd have the same kind of London accent. No, no hint of Knotts accent whatsoever. No, I think that's right. I'd, I'd basically want him to play it as Bricktop, so it, it would <laughs> it would still be my words that were were said. But I think giving them that air of Bricktop. Listen, I don't want mashed potato for my dinner. I want chips. When I ask chips, I don't want to know. And a fucking cooked. <laughs> or whatever it was. Not that I would ever say that. So it would have to be, you know. Uh, yes, I think I got seven out of eight for my maths test. I will endeavour to do better next time. You know, I just it's, think that would give it a real <laughs> force. It's funny because now that you do the impression there, and I'm looking at you, you do actually realise that when he speaks menacingly, he could also be Wallace out of Wallace and Gromit when he's talking. <laughs> You know what? I have to I have to declare an interest here. I've got to know him, and he's kind of become a friend. And this all happened because me and my friend Lloyd Langford, who's a phenomenal comedian from Wales, who's now a big star in Australia, we got drunk one day in a pub. And I don't know how we ended up doing this, but we are talking about Bricktop. And uh, he said, I can't remember whose idea it was. I think it was Lloyd's. He said, we should just take him out for dinner. <laughs> I was like, how the fuck are we going to do that? He said, we should just email his agent. So he emailed his agent and said, look, we know this sounds strange, but we're two comedians, we're big fans of Alan, we'd love to take him for dinner. 
by pure chance, I think he'd seen me in something the week before and he was aware <laughs> of Lloyd. And uh, he said, yeah. So we get this email back saying he'd love to go for dinner, um, but he'd like you to know he's a vegetarian. And when he says vegetarian, he means vegetarian and not a cunt. <laughs> so like, wow. So we take him out for this dinner before, not this Christmas, the Christmas before. We go to this lovely vegetarian <laughs> restaurant. We had the best night and he's great. And actually I bumped into, we'd emailed, then I bumped into him in a pub in Primrose Hill and was like, Alan, he went, nah, you're meant to be taking me for dinner. I thought you'd buy me actual vegetarian. And what's amazing is he is this lovely man, but he does sound like Brick Top Tony and all his mannerisms are like Brick Top. He's very nice. He's a, such a sweet and thoughtful guy and he loves comedy. So he's fans of all these comedians that the public might not have even heard of. He's got like a real deep knowledge of contemporary British stand-up. But um, even when he's ordering stuff, you know, I'll have a bottle of beer. I don't find that wine goes with that particular meat. <laughs> you know, it's still <laughs> your face at uh, having dinner with Bricktop, but you're not having dinner with Bricktop, you're having dinner with Alan Ford. He's just an amazing guy. He's such a phenomenal bloke. And uh, <laughs> he, he obviously talks like that. So he, it's such a, it's such a, uh, a great, um, just such an amazing man. Such a, you know, obviously incredibly talented. He's had a phenomenal career. And that and role is iconic. And then you it's almost impossible, as sweet as he is. It's impossible to not be mildly intimidated. Yeah. It's Brent yeah. Top Tony. You cut your bleeding Jacobs off. You know, it's just <laughs> incredible. So I have how a vested you, interest in casting. Well, how did you, how, when you had that meal with him, what was, how, what was like the intro? How did you break the ice with him? Well, because I bumped into him in that pub, I was like, no, we'll sort the dinner out. I'm so sorry. Because um, Lloyd had been away a lot. And then we just, we just all met there. We just chatted shit. We're like, so what, you know, we just asked him about his life and he asked us about our life and we talked about comedy and what he watched. You know, it was just like, it was like we'd, it was like we'd just all known each other. And then we went to the pub afterwards. So we bought him dinner and then he insisted on taking us for a drink. We talked about politics. We talked about comedy. We talked about life and all sorts of things. He just have, obviously has lived a long and, and, uh, and wonderful life. And, uh, but he is bricked up Tony, you know, just so, so. <laughs> And he is a dapper gent, you know, he's a, he's is a proud working class guy and he, you know, he's got his hair cool and I think he was like wearing like a sort of cravat or neck. He just looked so cool. He was a geezer, but such a sweet guy. We, you know, just amazing. In a way, I feel bad talking about it because I feel like it's the sort of thing you should keep private, but obviously I've cast him in this film. Um, <laughs> so it was going to come out anyway. I interviewed him once and he, I think, is the most intimidating person I've ever interviewed. And I had his business, his business card. I got, I yes. got his business card. Yes, it's his face. Yeah. In fact, where is it? Yeah. I've got, it's, a, it's that great credit card size business. Old yeah. 4D. Yeah. <laughs> of his face, one side. And then the other. I mean, he's, really he's a great cool. choice. He's a great choice. It's, it's a really, it's a, do you know what, Matt? It's a really left field choice as well. And I'm all for left field choices. Now I'm Thank really you. curious, given you've spoken about um, this story is going to be one man's, battle against eczema and nicknames and um, injustice. It's yeah. called Scab. Alan Ford is yeah. playing you. So what genre would the film be? And kind of what budget are we looking at? Okay, on genre, I think it would be a really dark and gritty, nasty screwball comedy. Nasty screwball comedy. Yes, yeah, a, a real mix of styles. So it would have, it would have that darkness, 
that you would want from 80s Britain, real kitchen sink stuff. Yes. With um, really daft, silly moments. <laughs> so a real head fuck of a film. <laughs> um, Budget wise, <laughs> I, I don't know. What, I mean, what are film, but 100 million should do it. Hundred, just just the hundred million. Yeah, hundred million. Just the hundred million. Fine, we'll do that. You know, marketing budget. Alan, obviously, he. Yeah. You know, you, I imagine you go into contract negotiations with him. You go in at one level. By the time you come out, he's quadrupled it because you're just so intimidated by him. It's gone yeah. up, and he's suddenly getting twenty five million. Fine. Nasty screwball comedy. Are you thinking sort of in Bruges? That kind of real gallows humour. Uh, maybe yeah, more sort of, but darker, like in Bruges, but darker and dafter at the same time. Okay, a real mix. You really wouldn't know what was coming next, and it would have like nasty torture scenes, like in Hostel, <laughs> and then um, like slapstick, like Benny Hill. So a real people would just be like, "What is this film? What like this is a mess?" There'd be a torture sequence, and then someone would slip on the blood. And like knock over someone's back. Someone's walking in with a trifle, and they slip on the blood, and they knock someone over with a trifle. That yeah. kind of thing. Absolutely, you've nailed it. You can really see it. So I'm obviously doing see- a good job of selling it. I can see it. I just wondered: would the torture sequence just be removing some of the scabs, or is that not? Does that not feature? Yeah, that's a good idea. For I mean, the thing is with that is, uh, as anyone with X-Men will tell you, that would probably be quite a pleasurable experience. You know, you can't. I, I think what's really odd is <laughs> a real pleasure in. And obviously scratching the itch, as anyone who's ever had an itch, which should be most people will know. Yeah. Um, I think I would just dial up some of the elements so the bullying scenes would be like you know, <laughs> screwdrivers through the kneecaps, oh. um, teeth, Bunsen burners to the feet, like really dial it up, make it really <laughs> gritty and horrible. It'd be like sort of zero, dark 30, sort of grimy basements underneath the school with yeah. wrenches and yeah. you know, wow. really, really nasty organised crime elements, really sinister. I mean, that is hardcore. That's really hardcore. Triple hardcore. I, I, mean, I would want those scenes to be so bad, it, it would have to be banned. Oh, I would, want, I would want moral out. I would want the Daily Mail to say the sickest film ever made. Ban this sick film. <laughs> um, but also, it's very funny. Four stars. So the scabs could possibly be nailed back on. That's as a well. really good idea. Remove the scabs and then staple them on, glue them on. Yeah. Yeah. That kind of thing. Shoot them on. Shoot. <laughs> <laughs> have a, g- <laughs> a scab on the arm and then shoot through it. I mean, I'll make sure you have scabs forever, you son of a bitch. You, you know, take my bloody scabs off. <laughs> You're only supposed to blow the bloody scabs off. Yeah, yeah. Maybe Michael Caine could be in there as a torturer. Um, right. Just what have you? Have you? What's the nastiest film you've ever seen? Then, like, do you like Post- nasty Postal. films? Yeah, but the, I have a real problem where if something is the worst thing ever made or the nastiest thing ever. Like if someone says, this is the darkest film ever made, this is the, I have to see it. And I don't know whether that's something within myself that I have to confront my fears, that I don't like to run away from it. Yeah. um, So I watched The Human Centipede, because it was described as the most disgusting film ever made, and it probably is. Hostel, I have to say, I would never watch again, and I won't watch the sequels. That And actually, in truth be told, the two films that have really affected me where for days after I wasn't right, Requiem for a Dream and Hostel, and those films still at times haunt me. Really? They really, really disturb me on a profound level. Um, so I'd want to bring those elements in. Um, <laughs> and, and have That's cathartic have for you, though. It's cathartic for you, right? That's the thing. You're, 
you're 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 internalizing and then pushing out, which helps you rid, exactly. get you know yeah. rid yourself. I think I've I think I caught one of the hostile sequels, and I and there was a something in it, and I and I I'm not going to describe it, but it, I was I I just watched it. I think I and I, I turned it off because I I gen, I genuinely don't know what that film was trying to do. I don't know what it is. Try, I don't know what these films are trying to do when they show those extended sequences. And, yes. and and there's nothing to learn. There's nothing to learn, I don't think. No, it's entirely gratuitous. And, and it's just, it's pure shock value, isn't it? It's just, oh my God, this is even worse than the original. You know, it's just, it's purely for, it's basically the equivalent of, of some form of clickbait. Yes. But at film level, it's like, you know, just the, just the pleasure of crap, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> someone else. It's happening to someone Good else, not me. Film. Yeah, exactly. Well, there's an element of that, isn't there? It definitely yeah. makes you go, God, you come out of the cinema thinking, I thought my life was shit. <laughs> At least I've not had my face blowtorched off. Do you know what I mean? Like, there is an element of that. You go, thank fuck. You know, whatever problems you walked into that auditorium with are, are vastly diminished afterwards. So, yeah, maybe this there is, is a, something. This, is, this is shaping up. I mean, I, lo- I love the idea you want the film to be banned. I want you to, to upset the Daily Mail. How, did, you ever, did you ever get a... A video nasty out when you were a kid. Did you ever convince like your your uh, your mum or whatever to get like let you get a video nasty out? No, my mum was immensely strict on on a lot of things on things like that. So on films, it was like can't see them to can't see a fifteen. So I'd have to go to friends' houses to watch them. In fact, I remember buying a Steve Coogan video live and lewd, which was eighteen rated. I bought that when I was about sixteen, and I put a little bit of white paper down the spine of the. <laughs> VHS thing so that she couldn't see the 18 rated thing on like my shelf. It's like she finds out I bought an 18, she's gonna be fucking living. And I'll tell you what, that dark red 18 logo on an old VHS really fucking shone out. It was like having a spotlight on it. You're like, <laughs> like a snipe, like a sniper sight, just there. You oh, can just man. See- fucking just glowing in the corner. I'm like, I'm <laughs> so yeah, there's no 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 video nasties were an absolute no-no in our house. Oh, so no. I would have to go to uh I would more liberal or indeed reckless <laughs> households to watch things like The Terminator. And that, you know, started actually watching a load of films I never got to see at the time, like Hellraiser and The Gate or bits that you saw at the time. You know, that really yeah. weird, fucked up 80s horror genre. Yeah. Where it's just really nasty. They're so comedic actually looking back, but they are dark. Hellraiser is a great yeah. example. It's got some really, there's some really nasty elements to it. Um, it's but really it's sexual. I was like, it's basically your yeah. porno. Yeah, yeah. Weird. True. So I like the idea now that you're well, everything you couldn't have as a youngster, you're now binging on as a as a filmmaker. So bearing in mind you want to have all these elements, this like this hostile Daily Mail rousing elements, while at the same time having this political backdrop. I mean, I'm just wondering which moments, which parts of your life would definitely have to be in there, and why, and how did they fit into this kind of genre and vision? So uh, one of my most vivid memories of primary school is. Uh... Really needed the toilet, <laughs> but I was too shy to say anything. Really didn't want to interrupt the teacher. I've got a real thing about uh, about not interrupting people. You know, I, I just think <laughs> I, 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 still to this day. I, I, anyway, so um, great. I mean, since... sorry to interrupt. It's brilliant for you as a, as a radio broadcaster. Uh, I mean, that is a great. That's a great habit to have. I think so. I mean, I think with radio and stuff, I, I, I'm maybe a little. It's different. I think if you're kind of Maybe with broadcast things, I'm slightly different. But certainly on my political podcast, I really let the guests speak, you know. But so anyway, I didn't say anything. So this is a life lesson. Busting for a number two. <laughs> and uh, 
we're doing PE in the school hall, primary <laughs> schools. I'm maybe six, seven. Matt. I'm on the monkey bars. Matt. And um, nature, nature takes its course. And uh, I basically <laughs> shit myself on the monkey bar. <laughs> Teaching us mad. And I was like, well, you know, I was too shy to speak up. I'm certainly too shy to explain what's happened. But uh, from then on, I was just like, oh, you should always raise your hands. <laughs> you know, so, um... <laughs> Sorry to interrupt. Sorry to interrupt. I know you hate it. But point, point there. If you're on a monkey bar, you're raising your hand anyway. Both arms are raised really already. Point. I'm on the monkey bars. You've really got me in the technicality there. Yeah. <laughs> I, um, I, uh, you should always speak up in, you know, if you need help or if you're in danger or uh, if you have a pressing, if you need the toilet, you know, it's just a real <laughs> lesson that just like, you know, what I thought would be rude actually wasn't. Shitting all over the floor was far ruder. So <laughs> uh, it, I realised this is disgusting and I apologise, but it happened and it's important that it's in the film because it it was a very important early life lesson for me. But, um, oh God, so embarrassing. Did that? Did was that the talk of the school for a while, or did it did it go away? Kind of. Quick? I think at that age, I think it maybe for a sort of day. You know, it was people were talking about the brown rain, um, <laughs> but I think it didn't stick for want of a better phrase. <laughs> it, it didn't haunt me through the rest of my school years. I wow! Think at that sort of age, people are shitting and pissing quite a lot, aren't they? So. I kind of I kind of got away with it a bit. I dodged a bit of a bullet. It certainly wasn't held over me. I mean, that is a very brave admission. That is a very brave admission and, and to, to share. It's, uh, that is a big deal. Is there anything else? I mean, is there anything else in life that you think was a major life lesson you want in there apart from that? Or is that just going to be the key set piece sequence? Will that be like the ticking think, clock? Will it be suspenseful? I think that's the key sequence. I think the other thing I'd like in there, just the occasional cutaways, whatever stage I'm at in life, just of me scratching a lot. <laughs> so whatever's going on, just a cutaway, just just to remind people, God, you're with X-Men, you're just scratching all the time. And I really want uh, the film to, to do that. Yeah. You know, what's really odd is I watch myself back on things sometimes because it's a good way to learn. You think, I scratch all the time. Do you think? Yeah, I'm just finding myself. I watch myself back, I'm like, you're scratching your face while you're talking. <laughs> it's mad. I remember being in a school play and like my teacher was like, it's really good, but you do scratch a lot on stage. I was like, I don't even realise I'm doing it. I just don't realise I'm doing it. <laughs> so so uh, I think to really get that across, yeah. he, he, the character would need a permanent itch that just constantly sort of scratching away. Constantly doing that. Was it, was, it was, um, oh gosh, was it John Torito in The Night Of? He played a lawyer. I think he had eczema and he was constantly scratching and i think he had a ruler like in his office he was like putting it down his plaster cast to scratch an itch and all sorts of things it made you feel you felt that you know he really conveyed he really conveyed that itchiness i mean this Um, is uh, really bad but at secondary school i used to keep a little bit of sandpaper in my bag oh fucking what face got really itchy i mean i really bad itch from my face but the problem is with with a really bad itch is literally nothing shuts it up you know it's like it's just I would rather, my far preferred, you know, the, the sort of cycle of eczema is it's really itchy, you scratch it, and then it's sore. And I always actually preferred the sore bit. The itch is just, you can't concentrate, you can't think straight. It, wow. it, it, everything else is, is pushed out when you've got an itch. And uh, at least with the soreness, you're not itching. You know, you don't want to touch it. You're like, if anything, when it's sore and painful, it's a relief. You're like, Oh, at least that bit's over with. So, uh, yes, I, I would. This has become far deeper than I expected. I thought this was going to be a, a kind of 
kind of light I'm, and frivolous conversation, really. Oh no, I'm telling I mean, you stuff I, I've never told anyone before. <laughs> and what I would like, though, Matt, is that you say that you you feel like you constantly scratch and you don't know you're doing it. I think what you deserve, and what Alan Ford playing Matt Ford deserves, Fordy Ford deserves, is a sequence in Vegas where you go and play poker and no one can read you because you're they can't what has he got a good hand or a bad hand and you're scratching and no one knows and you end up winning a fortune that is such a good i'd never thought that actually having a constant scratch could be a, a benefit in some way could be a, an asset that would help me attain my millions oh that's great that, i'm going to do it i'm going to do it anyway <laughs> whether it's in the film or not what a great excuse to go to Vegas. Why are you going to Vegas? I've got eczema. You work it out. <laughs> the sun would probably help me as well. So then you would never see I'd sun in back. Vegas. Never see oh, really? sun in Vegas. I mean, oh. you'd be in the casino, wouldn't you? You'd be in casino 24 hours a day. Winning. Winning. Yeah. So with that in mind, the parts that are going in, which moments from your life would you want on the cutting room floor? What wouldn't make it in? I think any, any times I was cheeky to my mum. <gasps> I, I, I would really, uh, oh... Yeah, so heartbreaking if I were ever back chatting my mum. So oh. embarrassed by it. So I would I wouldn't want that in. I'd I, I wouldn't want yeah, I just oh god. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, anytime I was cheeky to my mum would get left out. <laughs> did you do you did you did you feel did you feel bad at the moment you did it? Was it that kind of immediate react? Did you get that immediate sense of guilt? Oh yeah. I mean, again, I was a very well-behaved child, so uh there was nothing serious, but Oh, God, yeah. <laughs> you know, mums are really special, aren't they? There's a reason why if you want to hurt someone, you insult their mum and not their dad. Yeah. Um, we have a very different relationship with our mothers. And I think, uh, yeah. Oh, God, I'm sure she's forgiven me. But, uh, yeah, back chatting your mum is a bad idea, kids. Don't do it. I think that's a really nice, really nice message to send, Matt. I think that's a really... And I couldn't imagine... Could you imagine Alan Ford back chatting whoever's playing your mum on screen? I mean, that would be absolutely destructive. Yeah, he's listening, darling. I said I wanted spaghetti hoops. <laughs> we never, we never had spaghetti hoops. I've sort of, I've sort of changed it. But we had a lot of very healthy food. It was like home cooked, lots of veg. I do like these carrots you made, but I would have liked a bit more broccoli as well. Thank <laughs> you, mother. Maybe it would be more like that. Can I say, you've done a wonderful job of cooking this lasagna. <laughs> I find the meat-to-sauce ratio optimal. <laughs> Again, I didn't speak like that either, so I don't know how it's sort of become... But it's a fictionalised account. You've got to, to utilise Alan Ford as well as staying true to the story. I've been wondering, Matt, what, what are the influences on this film from TV, film, and literature, comics, or theatre? I mean, I think we've mentioned a couple of things, but is there anything in particular that you would like to draw from? I think you said, like, kitchen sink and nasty sort of uh, films. Anything, is there anything else? So it's kind of to the two... So it's, it's basically Dead Man's Shoes <gasps> meets Anchorman 2. Wow. It's Hostel <laughs> meets Only Fools and Horses. So I think... <laughs> Only fools and hostels. <laughs> dead Anchorman shoes. <laughs> um, so it's uh, dead Anchorman's twos. So it's yeah. Uh, yeah, it's a mixture of all those things. It's cares meets bridesmaids. You know, it's it's right. It's, 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 it's cares meets bridesmaids. <laughs> so they, they would be the primary influences on it. 
All I can think of is a kestrel in a wedding dress shitting itself. Sounds great, though, doesn't it? When you put it like that, a yeah. kestrel in a bride's... In a, in a, in a, what was it? In a, in a Bridesmaid in a bride's dress. Yeah. yeah. Bridal dress, yeah. Shitting itself. Who wouldn't want to see that? <laughs> All ages. That's the, kind of, that's the kind of thing that does very well on YouTube, I think. And, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, maybe it'd be more of a viral hit than uh, Leicester Square. <laughs> does it have a message, the film? I'm just wondering, does it have a message in any way? Oh, that's a really good question. Uh, I guess it would be apply your cream. Uh, <laughs> yeah, because with eczema, obviously, and again, it's like a life story. It's about following rules, isn't it? Is uh, if I don't put my cream on or if yeah. I eat something I'm allergic to, it's going to flare up. You know, if I ate fish, I would die. So it's really important that I don't eat fish. Yes. A severe anaphylaxis. I mean, this there's the eczema element. The other element that I think uh, could have been in there is as well as having eczema, I have asthma and a severe allergy to fish and nuts. That has almost killed me a couple of times. Um, really? So, yeah. So I almost cocked it. That's how I found out. I was. I mean, so the two moments where, as a kid, I thought I might die here were one. I had fish at my auntie's house, really young, and that's how I found out I was allergic to fish. And your windpipe just closes. It's like being throttled by the invisible man. Like <gasps> you're just sort of going, and you can feel it. Almost brings your eczema out. This sort of prickly rash spreads all over, and it's just like. You're going. And I remember an asthma attack. And again, this is a really good lesson about speaking out and speaking up. Or just like, if you're in a problem, shout for help. You know, we used to go on holiday in Skegness as kids. So if you grow up in Nottingham, the east coast of England is pretty much where people go on holiday. Mablethorpe, Skegness, Chapel St. Leonard's. I would have an asthma attack every time. And uh, I think it was because we were staying in caravans, you know, dusty places really was probably what it was. But I had this asthma attack and, uh, you know, the ambulance would come and I'd be stuck on a nebulizer, which is this amazing, like, mega inhaler where it's the face mask and it's an electric device that basically vaporizes Ventolin and you breathe it in that way. It just, like, immediately solves the problem. Holy Um, shit. And one holiday that I think was in Andaba Creek, I'm having an asthma attack. My mum rings 999 and the ambulance just isn't coming. And... uh, my breathing has become very shallow and uh, my granddad's sort of holding me on the uh, settee and uh, it's been a while. And oddly, you kind of become very calm because you have to control your breathing. You're sort of oddly calm, but you're aware you're in a severe existential crisis and the ambulance isn't coming and it's taking ages. And my mum just runs out into this just, you know, we're in like a chalet, so like a chalet park and just shouts. My son's having an asthma attack. Has anyone got a nebulizer? By pure chance, there's a guy like two chalets down who's asthmatic who has a nebulizer. I mean, who no. the fuck has a nebulizer? Wow. They, they, basically, it'd be like someone having a defibrillator or a drip. You'd be just like, how the fuck have you got one of those? It's a foot pump one. So it looks like something you'd pump up a car tire with. So then he straps oh, me to it and he's then just basically foot pumping. to almost like inflating me to keep me alive. <laughs> So, uh, yeah, I, uh, so I, why did I leave those out if I'm making... Maybe I'd stick that in as well. Yeah. Um, so, yes, so I guess the message to bring it back to that is, like, do the things that keep you alive. So, you know, don't be... Uh, you take those things seriously. So avoid fish and nuts. Take that seriously. Put your cream on because it will help. Don't eat stuff yeah. you're allergic to, you know, because <laughs> otherwise your life's going to be hell and it will be also I know you short. Want- Matt, I'm sorry to interrupt. I know you wanted to like ho- ho- horrific scenes in in school labs, bunts and burners to the feet. 
These scenes are quite harrowing that you're describing. These are these are because, of course, it, it's the juxtaposition of being on holiday and having a horrific a, a event like that. That's kind of scary, particularly in a chalet, like where it's meant to be fun. Yeah, Thomas the Tank was on. Remember that? But um, <laughs> I, again, this is where the goofball element. This is where the you know the guy <laughs> with the um, nebulizer would trip over. Um, and, uh, you know, uh, his trousers would fall down and, um, you know, he'd, he'd, he'd put it on the wrong way around and I'd deflate instead of, um, <laughs> he'd be sucking the air out of me instead of putting, um, Ventolin in, it'd be like cannabis oil. Uh, you know, it'd, it'd be real silly moments to it. Um, so it would be a heartwarming tale for, for, for all the family. <laughs> So with that, so it means that there's a there's a lot packed into it. There's a lot packed into it, wildly varying in tone, which I'm a big fan of. Um, if the critics love it or hate it, how would that affect you and your next project? Would it affect you and your next project? I'd rather they liked it. I'd far rather the public like it. So as yeah. long as people went and saw it and enjoyed it, it wouldn't bother me too much. I just don't think you can ever create anything with critics in mind, because I think then you start second guessing. With anything in life, I think you have to learn lessons. And I think if people give you criticism that resonates and perhaps you thought, actually, they're right about that because that was something I was worried about. If they spot a hole that you knew existed, then I think that's okay because you go, actually, that confirms what I thought. If you start thinking, oh, God, I was completely wrong. I need to rethink my whole thing. Then, then really, you then set yourself on a course where you're not, trusting your own judgment and i think it, you have to get to a point obviously you always need and i think the crucial thing to, to sort of avoid that problem is to work with people that are that will tell you if an idea is shit and, and will help you make a, an idea better yeah. and will help you get that thing right just listening to people who maybe you've missed the point or didn't like it you know and people have different tastes i think the danger is with anything creative whether it's music comedy art theater film you have to trust your gut instinct. You have to work with people that will make that as good as possible and take criticism. But once it's, you know, you have to be true to yourself and what you are trying to create. And I think if you try and make, sometimes people just won't get it and that's fine. Everyone has different tastes. Loads of films I don't like. I wouldn't expect the people making them to sort of change their worldview to suit me. So I would rather the public like it is, is, is the honest thing. And I, I think in the end, I think whenever you're creating anything, you just want a direct relationship with your audience and you want people to be able to find it and you want people to enjoy it. And um, it's what they think matters most, I think. And I think that's probably a lesson I learned in politics is not about anything else. Ultimately, you have to win the people over. And if you don't, that, that that's the basis on which you live or die. You say that was what you learned while working in politics. It wasn't That wasn't necessarily something that you learned after you moved into comedy and writing and performing yeah that as well but i think i i think politics is such a zero-sum game you either do win or you lose you know in with creative stuff and obviously even in politics you can take positives from things but ultimately you did lose that election or you did win that election and there is no debate about that and i think that really sharp that really focuses the mind whereas with creative stuff you can go oh well i got that bit right or some people liked it and that's okay it doesn't have to be zero so be mad if it was and we can all think of films or songs that you like part of it, but not all of it. And overall, yeah. you have a balanced view of it. So I think politics really helps sharpen my thinking about stuff, which I think is just a helpful thing is you have to. And also, I just think it helps you communicate. It helps you get across. You know, you have to be really clear about what the thing is. And yeah. What are people watching here? And, and what do you want them to take from it? And I think they're all good 
guiding thoughts for creativity, to be clear about what it is, to communicate it well. I mean, jokes are a really good example. Jokes are a really good example of how you have to give people clear information. If you think of a one-liner, the setup is crucial because that's where you're giving people the information. Without the setup, the punchline makes no sense. So you have to get the setup right. And I think in, in various ways, you know, films are, you know, there is a setup and a, if, even if it's not a comedy film, you, you're giving people information, it has to pay off somewhere. So I think sometimes I've done material where I thought, why didn't that work? It worked yesterday. So I try and record, particularly when I'm doing work in progress gigs, get ready for a tour, yeah. record my gigs. And if I can bear it, I'll listen back. It's an excruciating <laughs> experience. Worse than watching yourself back. It's horrific. Um, and I'll go, oh, fuck. I didn't tell it properly. I didn't give them the information in the setup. So they weren't going to understand the punchline. Right. And I don't do one-liners. But, it, it, you know, boiling it down, that's what it'll be a lot of the time. Is Oh, I didn't tell them the crucial information about whatever it was. So they didn't understand what the joke was about. I misspoke. You know, I got overexcited and didn't say it properly or whatever it is. I was nervous and I didn't get to the point. You know, you really have to get to the point with comedy. They're the sort of guiding things, really, rather than, oh, I wonder if I'm going to make a show that The Guardian will like or that The Daily Mail will like or whoever. And also, I think, in the end, people can kind of smell it on you. They can tell if you're being inauthentic. And in the end, long term, you're better off being yourself. And I just think that's a good life lesson anyway. That doesn't mean you have to be a cunt. That doesn't mean, <laughs> oh, don't care what anyone thinks, because that's not the same thing. Yeah. But be true to yourself as much as you can in the stuff that you create. Don't try and second guess it based on what certain other people are going to think. In the end, that's how you win, I think. By the way, that, that, that the kind of maxim that you delivered there, you know, don't be a cunt. Alan Ford delivering that line at a crucial point in the film. I mean, that is going to be... Don't be I mean, a cunt. Yeah. That'll be the clip they show at the Oscars. <laughs> I was thinking about Noel Gallagher on this. I watched um, some retrospectives about what's the story, Morning Glory, that turned 25. Either last year or this year. Oh, there was Supersonic, but they did on the, on the Oasis YouTube channel, they oh. did some videos of... Uh, Morning Glory turning 25. Oh, sorry, I beg your pardon. And he talks about how... <laughs> What's the story Morning Glory was initially trashed by the critics? And then basically what happens is... And it's a great album. And, you know, historically, I guess people agree that it's a great album. Then Be Here Now... So the critics snag off What's the Story Morning Glory. Then Be Here Now comes out and they all go mad for it and heap praise on it. And then in retrospect, I mean, I really like Be Here Now. In fact, I love Be Here Now. But it's really interesting how the critics slagged off Morning Glory and everyone says, hang on, that's a great album. They heap praise on Be Here Now. <laughs> and the public view on that is, is the opposite. So actually, I think um, in time, the best thing you can do is just, you know. Yeah. Be, be rigorous with yourself during the creative process. You know, be critical while you're making it to make it as good as possible. But, but don't lose that driving vision that made you think it was a good idea in the first place. Yeah. And so you, you've kept that vision, Matt. The film has been made. It's the premiere. Where's the premiere taking place and who's invited? The premiere is taking place in a very special cinema that no longer exists. So I would reopen it, the Nottingham Odeon, um, which <gasps> sadly was turned into student flats. And that sort of cultural vandalism, really, of like robbing people of those historic places really frustrates me because... A city centre cinema can absolutely work. Now, there's another city centre cinema in Nottingham, but there was something really special about that Odeon. It was 
beautiful. The main screen there was massive, like a huge theatre. I mean, I think, as with a lot of the old Odeons, the, the Apollo used to be the Hammersmith Odeon. They were live music venues as well. So the Beatles yeah. and all those people played there. Now that yeah. place has basically been demolished and turned into flats. So you can't even stand on the same space. Yeah. Um, so I'd reopen the Nottingham Odeon by bulldozing the current student flats and recreating <laughs> it as it was brick for brick. And uh, on the invite list, anyone who's been a member of Oasis, anyone who served in the 97 to 2010 Labour government, uh, anyone who's ever played for Nottingham Forest, Sue Pollard and Vicky McClure. I mean, is Pollard available? Is she, are you sure out of everyone, is she, is she the hardest one to pin down, do you think? I would pay any price to get her there. She is Nottingham what? royalty. Why? Why is just because she's a she's a she's a knots icon. Knots icon. She's really really funny. What a hilarious person Sue Pollard is. I would, <laughs> if she can't come, I'm changing the release date. She's <laughs> crucial to this launch event. I love her. So uh, yes, Pollard is a must. Pollard. I mean, I just I just I just love the event. I love the idea. An event of that magnitude is contingent upon Sue Pollard's availability. I, I'm not sure that's ever happened before, but I am I'm so with it. <laughs> I am so with it. I'm not even sure the filming schedule of Heidi High was that important as to whether or not she was involved. But but her being re- ready for Scab, the movie premiere, that's a huge yeah. <laughs> that is it. So who isn't invited and why not? Who's not who's not on the guest list? Who isn't coming to the beautifully rebuilt Nottingham Odeon? along with every member of Oasis, all 900 of them, and uh, Sue Pollard, Vicky McClure, and the Labour government from 97 onwards. And any, anyone who's ever played for Forest. And anyone who's ever played for Forest. I apologise. Yeah, that's the big uh, one. Uh, 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 any level. Um, <laughs> any uh, level. <laughs> so, and they have to come in the kit they wore at the time. Um, so, who is not invited? Trouble causers. <sighs> I don't want any trouble at this film, um, <laughs> even though it has dark elements. School bullies are not invited. Trouble causers are not invited. People who litter are not invited. <gasps> People who spit in the street are not invited. People who play music on the bus without putting their headphones in or play music with headphones too loud are not invited. So even though this is you know, a rough, blunt retelling of a life lived... <laughs> I, there will be no sucker at this premiere for people who disrespect the basic principles of what a functioning society is. I need trouble. I saw too much trouble in my time. I don't want any at this premiere. It will be a law-abiding, peaceful, but joyous event. <laughs> That's on the RSVP. Please come to our law-abiding, peaceful and joyous event. Um, yeah, no spitting, no graffiti, no litter. Litter everywhere. It's one of the things that's driven me mad about the last year is it's been this huge bonding experience through real hardship. You walk through any park in this country, the litter after people have been there is appalling. Why can't people just, no, there was no bins. Fine, the council should provide extra bins. I agree with that. But if there's no bin, you take it home. I think litter is so disrespectful because all it means is some member of council staff on minimum wage can have to tidy all that up for you. Litter is the ultimate act of entitlement. I loathe it. It drives, and it's just horrible. You're like, you've ruined this place, let alone the impact on wildlife. Yeah. Oh, I hate it. I hate it so much. It's just one of those things where you go, you don't respect the streets on which you walk or, or you know, your public spaces. It, it's basically a, a sign. Anyone who drops litter 
basically in that moment is disrespecting society and like what society means. As citizens, we have a responsibility to each other and to ourselves. Don't fucking make it. What? (laughs) I've really gone off on one here. I hate it. Have you ever? Hate it. Hate it. Have you ever had a go at anyone for dropping litter when you've seen them drop litter? I have, and you know what? What am I thinking? Because you don't know who you're talking to. I remember once on a bus in Nottingham, there were these, and they were fine. It was care. So much of it is just careless and thoughtless. It doesn't mean people are evil. That's not what I'm saying. But it's just that careless and thoughtlessness has an impact on other people. And of course, I've been told off for swearing before. I'm not saying that I'm perfect or that I always, you know, you do need sometimes to someone to go, can you just keep the noise down, please? And you go, yeah, fine, sorry. You know, none of us are perfect. But they just left. They pushed their cans in between the gaps in the seats on the bus. Crisp packets yeah. everywhere. And then they just got off. I said, excuse me, lad, someone else is going to have to tidy that up. And the guy went, oh, yeah, fair enough, and took it. And you think sometimes, as long as you do it in the right way, equally. I remember seeing a guy drop a fag packet on the floor next to a bin. <laughs> I went, fucking hell, man. I couldn't even help it. I could t- I could take you to that exact spot today. Bottom of Friar Lane in Nottingham, near Mar- back in the market square. <laughs> I went, fucking hell, man. I said, the bin's right there. I wasn't even thinking. It was like I was talking. It was like I was playing football and going referee. <laughs> so the bin's there. You know, you got to be careful because someone could go. Who the fuck are you telling where the bin is? Yeah, and they pull a knife and you're dead. You know, so yeah. you have to be careful. You're like, but fucking. I think occasionally you're just going. Oh man, I just litter, litter. You're making this place a shithole, and you're you. Oh, <laughs> how have we ended up here? Sorry. So litter bugs are not litter invited. Bugs. Litter bugs are not invited. Yeah. And actually, very quickly, people who cause mess, obviously people will have, will people be allowed snacks? Because, of course, popcorn, you can't, but, you know, popcorn spills on the floor. That That is an issue. What if Pollard, what if Sue Pollard is there carelessly eating popcorn? Like, literally, doesn't care, shovel it in her mouth, flying everywhere. You've, you've raised a really good point, is where is the boundary between litter and just spillage? And uh, obviously, cinema floors are strewn with popcorn because you're eating in the dark. Yeah. And you're eating a knobbly snack, which, you know, <laughs> physics-wise, that could be banned at any angle. You're not in control of that. So that's yeah. difficult. So actually, I think the, the sort of popcorn on the cinema floor is one thing. Yeah. The popcorn, the amount, people just leave their litter in the cinema auditorium now. When did we start doing this? Yeah. Walk it to the bin, you lazy bastard. <laughs> that drives you mad. That's different. Dropping popcorn on the floor is something completely different. That's an occupational hazard of yeah. selling popcorn that is a knobbly snack, and we've covered the physics of this, and making people eat it in the dark. That is, the cinema takes on that risk. As for the carton and everything else, you have to take that with you. Don't leave the wrappers. And t- you, you, just, you know what drives me mad is? People will leave <laughs> that stuff. They'll walk past the member of cinema staff who's coming in afterwards and not go. Oh fuck! That guy's got to clear that up for me. The guy, no, mate. <laughs> like you've you've just made that guy's day. Shit. Oh man. So yes, I, snacks. Absolutely snacks. And they, they would be the best cinema snacks, but not at cinema prices. They would be competitively priced. They would be the same price they would be in the supermarket. So you get a big bag of munchies, big bag of Maltesers for a quid, mega sized popcorn for a couple of quid, big things yeah. of Pepsi. You know, really go for it. Hot dogs yeah. with jalapenos. Um, hot dogs? You'd allow hot dogs? After all this, you'd allow hot dogs in there? Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Hot dogs with mustard and ketchup. And the nachos? Would you allow the nachos in with the plastic cheese? 
Yeah, yeah. I want to enjoy it. You know, I'm surprised. Again, you know, it's joyous. It's joyous, but it's just. I'm surprised. But no talking during the film, obviously. Okay. I also like the idea of people eating hot dogs during a film called Scab featuring scabs. That's just. Oh yeah, maybe spring. maybe you could have maybe you could have maybe you could <gasps> sort of sprinkle some broken up tortilla chips on it as a kind of like rash. A themed <laughs> a themed hot dog for a tie in yeah. a movie tie in. That's a great idea. Yeah, get a bag of scabs. I'll have um, two Pepsi's and a bag of scabs, please. Man, beef <laughs> jerky. Oh, uh, Matt. Well, Scab, the Matt Ford biopic, is coming out soon. Bricktop from Snatch, starring as Matt Ford throughout his entire life. There's a monkey bar catastrophe. Do avoid fish and nuts. It's a goofball comedy with horrific, nasty elements. Litterbugs are not invited, but. Matt Ford, congratulations on being greenlit. Thank you so much. I'm delighted. I can't <laughs> wait to get out there doing press junkets to oh. uh, draw support. Can't wait to. Of course, I should have said you will be invited. I'd, I'd oh. love you to host the red carpet and host the oh, event, host the Q and A with oh, Alan brilliant. and me afterwards, and, and the other people who are in the film. Terrifying, and, uh, absolutely terrifying. Yeah. I and you'll have wait a part to... in the film as well, of course, because this film <laughs> wouldn't have happened without you. So. Um, you can, you can basically choose whatever role you'd like. I'd, I'd like you to be a leading part. Matt, thank you so much. Thank you. 